you would open a Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. I did not tell Taryn to say it would be a short sermon. He took that upon himself. As he has already stated, uh, this is the fifth Sunday. And on the fifth Sunday of all the months that have five Sundays, uh, the elders have decided that it would be a good time for us to focus our attention in this worship service on the Lord's Supper. And so we have rearranged the service so that we can think about these things in this period where we study from the Bible, and then shortly after we will partake of the Lord's Supper, having prepared our minds so thoroughly. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Matthew 26 and verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus, in a moment of crisis, decides to pray. There is a dark cloud over this night. Jesus knows what's going to happen, and if you read before what we have read, you read about Jesus taking the Passover and As he takes the Passover with his disciples, he takes the bread and says, this is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He has interrupted the meal by saying, one of you will betray me. He has ended by saying, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And then, of course, has to have an argument with Peter about whether he really means that with regard to Peter. The author of the hymn we've just sung sets this ominous tone. That is one of those songs where the words and the music fit so well. It is a haunting melody. And so the author describes it as a night with ebon pinion, which is not a phrase that we use very often. Night with ebon pinion means a night with dark wings brooding over the veil. Darkness like a bird watching its prey. There is so much to do for Jesus, so many prophecies to be fulfilled. The crowd is soon to come to get Jesus. Yet, in this moment, what he must do, he must pray, and he must pray now. So as we prepare ourselves to think about what's going to happen in the next day after what happens tonight with Jesus, it seemed fitting to me to ruminate on that scene, the dark night, And Jesus suffering in prayer. First, Jesus says, my soul 
is very sorrowful. In verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Sorrowful, troubled, very sorrowful, he says, even to death. Jesus is under tremendous strain. Everything, everything hinges on what happens in the next 24 hours. There are dark wings over the night. There is a dread in him. He has frequently spoken of this moment to his disciples. He has said, Luke 9, 21 and 22, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. A little later in Luke, Luke 13, 33, Nevertheless, he says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He knows where he is going. In Luke 18, as they approached Jerusalem, it says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But the disciples don't seem to understand it. In fact, sometimes they actively resist Jesus' teaching that he's going to die, as Peter does when he takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You know, it's one thing to know you have something awful you have to endure. But it is even more distressing when the people who are closest to you don't understand and wish away your concerns and tell you you are wrong. And yet that is where Jesus is. He also says this, which gives us a window into his sorrow. In Luke 12, 49 and 50, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I've come to cast fire, he says, but I wish it was already kindled. I have to be baptized, but I am distressed until it is accomplished. We would call what Jesus expresses here the ordinary human emotion of dread. He knows he has something awful he must do. I think it's easy to brush past these statements. But we're talking about Jesus here. Jesus is not exaggerating. He's not letting his words get away from him. What he is saying is, this is hard for me. And now the moment has come. As he comes to the garden... The wheels are in motion. He has already said, one of you will betray me, and his betrayer has gone out. He's soon to come back. He has already said, you'll all fall away because of me this night, and that will soon happen. And so he simply says to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. Jesus is somehow both with his men and yet alone. And so we can see how we can sing that his men are with him, and yet he is in Gethsemane alone. Or that there is no hand with words to comfort. No hand to help was there. So as he's sorrowful, he prays to God, let this cup pass from me. In verse 39, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
I want to get the full context of what is said here before we really talk about precisely what Jesus means by the idea of the cup passing from him. So in verse 40, it says, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So after one prayer session, the disciples he asked to watch with them, watch with him, have fallen asleep. And he turns that into a lesson. You notice that in verse 41, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You may have to overcome the weakness of the flesh. And so he goes and prays again. The wording is slightly different. This is a little further down in verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Remember, Jesus has known the whole time that he will die. This is not a surprise to him. And I want to point, call your attention to one passage in particular here. It's John 12, 27 and 28. Jesus, on realizing that the time has come, the hour has come, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is a very interesting passage as relates to what Jesus is experiencing. Because what he is saying is, my soul is troubled. I'm upset, but, but what am I going to do? I'm at the moment that I have come here for. I know what's going to happen, but it's hard for me. He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Should I ask God to save me from it? I know this is the reason I'm here. So you have that odd position where he understands what he needs to do, but he is still troubled by it. That's also what we see in the garden. So, what was Jesus asking when he asked the Father to let this cup pass from me? The cup is a very common image, especially in the Old Testament, to reference judgment and horror and desolation and suffering. Usually in the Old Testament is something brought on by God, judgment from God. It is the cup of judgment. And Jesus refers to what he's going to go through as a cup repeatedly. He says this to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's not talking about water baptism and he's not talking about a literal cup. He is talking about the suffering he's going to have to go through. So Jesus said to Peter, this is later that night, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So I take all of this to mean that the cup refers to the suffering Jesus is about to endure. Physical pain, deep humiliation and shame, being forsaken by his disciples. He is asking God to take that away, to find some other way to accomplish his will. Now, I know some brothers, I have brothers in Christ, who don't agree with my explanation of that. They think that Jesus wouldn't struggle this way because this is his mission, he came to do this, and that couldn't be what he's asking. So they think he's asking for the suffering to be shortened so that he wouldn't spend so much time in suffering. But I really do believe that Jesus is asking God in this moment, is there another way? 
that God can somehow accomplish his will of saving mankind without the suffering Jesus is about to endure. But whatever you take from all of that, what we need to understand is that Jesus was a human being and that what he's about to go through was hard for him. I don't know how many more ways he can say it. And then there is Jesus' final statement in his prayer, not as I will, but as you will. Now you might think that based on the idea that he asks the Father to let the cup pass from him, that that makes Jesus seem weak. But I disagree because each prayer ends with this eager submission to the Father's will, acceptance of the Father's will. In verse 39, he ends his prayer saying, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In verse 42, he says, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So what Jesus has done in the garden is he has expressed, This is my desire. I want some other way. Is there another way? Nevertheless, he says, your will be done, not as I will, but as you will. And so these words reveal an attitude of submission and acceptance. I trust you and I'm willing to follow you even though I want different. I'm just asking if you're willing to find another way. Now, I don't know if Jesus knew the answer immediately. I don't know those kinds of things about Jesus, like what did he know and when, that kind of thing. But it appears to me that Jesus is changed by his time in prayer. Luke tells us that an angel came and strengthened him. In verse 45 of Matthew 26, in verse 45, it says, He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you notice how Jesus is resolute now? After the prayer, it's time. Let's go. After the prayer, he comes to them. And in John's account, the people who come to arrest him actually back up from him. Jesus is ready for what he's going to suffer. And what impresses me is that after his time in prayer, you don't see Jesus with these kinds of thoughts and requests anymore. After this moment, Jesus never wavers. He is going to go through trials and beatings and mockings and strippings and nails, and he never wavers because he has been fortified through prayer. He is connected with the will of God, and now he's ready to go. So my question is, did anything change in the garden? Jesus prayed. Essentially, God says no. And now suddenly Jesus is stronger. Jesus goes into the garden, prepared to die for the sins of the world, and he comes out of the garden, prepared to die for the sins of the world. It reminds us that prayer is not always about changing circumstances. Sometimes prayer is about changing us so that we are connected to God and prepared to endure what we have to face. So what do we learn here? We learn that this wasn't easy for Jesus. I want you to see the suffering of Jesus in this moment. This is something we need to be very careful not to look away from just because it's unpleasant. And particularly for us, it's important that because we know the end of the story, 
we don't stop paying attention to the main thrust of the story. That Jesus is going to suffer and die and that it wasn't easy for him. And that Jesus suffered and died for the sins of man, particularly he did it for me. This wasn't easy for him. And if I can keep that thought in mind, if I can see him suffering, it will not only help me appreciate and give thanks to him, it'll also keep me from sinning. Because I don't want to spit on the sacrifice that's been made for me. We also learn here that God really wanted this. God hears his son asking to be delivered from his suffering. And as I understand scripture and what happens here, God says no. God watches his son suffer and die and does not intervene. In fact, God orchestrated and insists on this plan, which includes the death of his son. God really wanted this because God really loves me. Now, if this were my son, and if I had the love and concern for other people to let it get this far, where I'd sent my son to earth and I watched him go through everything he had gone through, this moment would be the moment if I, as a father, had the ability that I would be most tempted to back out. Hearing my son beg me for a way out. Find another way. But God's love for us and God's purposes won out. Thank God they did. Now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I urge you to think about Jesus and to think about what he suffered for us. I want you to think about how he suffered in the garden, in the fake and unjust trials that he had to go through, in the mockery and the beatings that he endured, and ultimately in his sacrificial death. God really wanted this, and it wasn't easy. I'm going to ask the men to come up and serve us the Lord's Supper at this time. All right, so we've been talking about uh, this idea of the night with Eben Pinion, the night in the garden, and how Jesus suffered, how Jesus was so sorrowful, how Jesus reached out to the Father, and how he prayed that the Father's will would be done and not his. So before we took the Lord's Supper, we talked about how this wasn't easy for Jesus and how God really wanted this, but that's not all I want us to learn from this section because there are a couple of things that I think will help us as we go through our week, as we enter into a new year as we think about our lives more broadly. The first is this. We need God in our key moments. This is what Braxton was talking about this morning. You were here in the first hour. By the way, those young men did a great job. I was thinking, as Matthew said, the young men are going to be leading the service. I thought, what does that make me? (laughs) So, uh, Because I guess the old men lead the second part, I guess. So um, Braxton did a great job in talking about How when we feel anxious and we feel in need, like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 1, we need to reach out to God. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus had to pray. He planned to pray. And I am impressed by this. He interrupted his life at an extremely busy and hectic time to pray. 
How many other things did Jesus have to do that night? How many special words to say? How many prophecies to fulfill? How many statements to make to the disciples, to Judas? How many things did he say to Peter? And yet in all of that, there must be time set aside for him and God. Jesus had to know that when he got done praying, things were not going to change. He had to know that going to God in prayer was something he needed to do only because he needed to do it. Now, the disciples didn't grasp what was going on. The disciples couldn't help him. And there are times that we all go through where no human help can be provided. There is no one who can help you. There is no person who can solve your problem. We know what that feels like. And sometimes it feels so, we feel so powerless. It is in those moments that we, like Jesus, need our Father. And I want to remind you, it's not always that God just fixes it. That's not what happens to Jesus. Where Jesus finally says, you know what, I do need to pray. And God comes in and takes care of everything. It's that there is someone who is always there. Someone who cares. Someone who can reassure us. Who is in control of things. Who can comfort us. We need God in our key moments. So please, don't do what we are all tempted to do which is encounter adversity and feel alone and assume we're alone and try to go it alone. That's not what Jesus shows us we need to be and to do. We need God in those moments. And the last thing that we learn here is that God can bring good out of suffering. Jesus' suffering in the garden reminds us that suffering is not the last word. God is able to, in fact, God usually does, bring good out of suffering. This is sort of a pattern in life. In order to grow, we have to go through some adversity. It's a pattern in education. It's a pattern in athletics. It's sometimes a pattern in us learning anything in terms of life lessons that we kind of have to suffer before we get the point and we kind of have to suffer before we are strong enough to grow. God brings good out of suffering. So what God does with Jesus' pain is he takes Jesus' pain and turns it into good for him and for us. And we are all thankful. In fact, the reason we're here today and the reason we even know each other is because God brought something good out of the suffering of Jesus. So what that means is when I face suffering whether that's minor discomfort as I try to change my life or discipline myself, whether that's the pain of persecution, the heartache of other people hurting me, whatever my suffering is, I can know that with God's help, my pain's not the last word. That's what I learned from Jesus here. He suffers, but that's not all. He suffers, and God brings good out of his suffering. After the night comes the morning. After the death comes the resurrection. Jesus emerges greater after he suffers. So we can trust that God cares about us in those key moments and that God is working to bring good out of our pain. Ultimate good, long-term good out of our pain. God shows us that's how he works and that's particularly what he did with his own son. There is a point to suffering if God can bring good out of it. So there might be someone here this morning 
who as you're thinking about your life and as you're ending a year and preparing to begin a new one, you think about your need for God and you think about the things you've endured and how it would be a blessing to you. It would be good for you to know that God was with you But there are things that you know you need to get rid of in your life. There are sins between you and God. And you need to come to Him asking His forgiveness and making your life right with Him. Or it could be that you don't have a relationship with God at all. And so you are ready to begin in a relationship with Jesus. In order to do that, you need to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when you believe that, you need to turn away from your sins and be buried with Him in baptism. You can begin a new life in Christ and God will be with you in your key moments and God will bring good out of your pain. If there is any way that we can help you to be right with God, we ask that you come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.